Currency Press is Australia's foremost publisher of the performing arts. We've been sharing Australian stories since 1971, and with those stories, we've also shared insights, ideas, and critiques. We think of them as the stories about stories, the stories behind stories, preparing us for the journey that we're about to undertake. Hello, I'm Toby Leon, and this is Not in Print. Today, Alana Valentine is going to read her response to *Summer of the Seventeenth Doll* by Ray Lawler. It's called *An Ever-Changing Idiom* and features in the Currency Press series *Cue the Chorus*, in which an assortment of respected Australian playwrights respond to the work of their peers. You can download all the responses in the series from our website, currencypress.com.au. A little bit about Alana Valentine. She is one of Australia's most renowned and respected writers. Valentine writes for the stage, screen, radio, and multimedia projects, but is perhaps best known for her plays. She is well known for her rigorous use of research within the community that she is writing about, and her work for the stage includes *Run Rabbit Run*, *Parramatta Girls*, *Cyberbile*, *Ear to the Edge of Time*, and *Coming Home Soon*. She has received numerous awards, both in Australia and internationally. Now here's Alana reading an ever-changing idiom. Her response to *Summer of the Seventeenth Doll* by Ray Lawler. When asking students to respond to the published text of a play, it is, of course, firstly important to recognise that it is not built for the two dimensions of the page where they are reading it, but rather for realisation in the three dimensions of the public stage, and includes a consciousness of what the flesh and breath of actors will bring to it. In being asked to respond to *Summer of the Seventeenth Doll*, which I have never seen in performance, I bring to it my imagination, my own stagecraft, my respect for its illustrious history, and my peculiar and very particular interests as a playwright. But like many of the students who will study the play, I also need to tear back the curtain of time and try to relate the play as vividly as possible to my own experience and perceptions about life. Because I want to have both an emotional and intellectual response to the play, I want to be roused both by its content and its form, and I want to be caught in the world of the play, both submitting to its spell and calibrating its craft. For this reason, the response that follows tries to wrestle to the page the cocktail of personal feelings, ideas, and questions that the play provoked in me. I have not, as an academic might, chosen one aspect of the play to interrogate, but rather I've tried to swallow the entirety of the experience that the play might generate on a stage, the aspects of both the form and the content that have moved me, and then the provocations about the current culture of Australian theatre, both nationally and internationally, that intrigue me. Like Olive in *Summer of the Seventeenth Doll*, I had a lot of mostly absent boyfriends when I was a teenager. They lived in Gosford. They lived in Newcastle. They lived in Como, and although we rarely saw each other, when we did, it was all fireworks and fancy times. The rest of the time, I could just wear them as a kind of essential adolescent badge, a proof that I was popular enough to be taken, an excuse not to respond to any of the advances of my more proximate adolescent peers, and an assurance to myself that the persistent naggings of my sexual identity could be ignored until when and if I got together with those geographically distant boys. 
I say a lot, not boastfully, but because it really was more of a pattern than an exception. I would hook up with a young man whose chief appeal was his potential absence. He would get tired of me being all keen on the phone but cool in the flesh, and I would be boyfriendless until another likely regional Romeo would present himself. It was all about proving to my female school friends that I could pull good-looking lads without actually wanting to spend any time with them. Now, I'm not going to try and run the line that Olive is in fact bisexual, or that her chief interest in Rue is the certainty of his regular absence and the Mardi Gras-like atmosphere that he brought to town when he came. I'm tempted, just because I haven't seen anyone else put this proposition, and frankly, because when confronted with an esteemed classic, the seductions of making wild and outrageous conjectures is always present. Why? Well, because it can be exciting to see the familiar through a new lens, even one that at first seems fanciful and a little outrageous. In doing so, I'm striving to be utterly respectful to Ray Lawler's genius in observing the truth and particularity of human nature, even to the point where his characters might have a life and interpretation beyond the one even he imagined like the person who reads Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and sees not the gothic melodrama, but all the behaviours and patterns of alcoholic addiction. As a playwright, I cherish the hope that I am observing and recording truths in my own work that are now subject to the conditions of my times, but might be seen very differently by the perceptions of the future. Oh, and for the fashionista who disdains the idea of any form of respectfulness as certain hagiography, let me observe that it is possible to be simultaneously respectful and robustly interrogative. In truth, I think the case I would try to make regarding the intimate choices of Olive and Rue and Barney and Pearl and Nancy would require an audience who were aboard a notion of sexuality which argued a spectrum of preference for kinds of sexual encounters, rather than corralled sexual identity to the dichotomies of straight and gay. What I mean, of course, is that sexual identity and sexual preference is not just about male or female. We know that there are women who prefer the casual frequency of sex in a way that is stereotyped as gay male, or that there are gay men who prefer the romance of long-term marriage in a way that is stereotyped as inherently female. We all know and have observed such persons, women who occasionally casually sleep with men but don't move in with them and call themselves lesbians, or men who can be married to women and also enjoy encounters with other men. It's a radical notion of sexuality that I'm conjuring and one that doesn't simply problematise a choice between straight and gay as a lack of courage. And I'm inspired to posit it precisely because Lawler, also invites us to look beyond narrow definitions of interpersonal relationships. Through Olive especially, he refutes the idea that all women have a predictable and definite desired outcome in their encounters with men. When Rue clumsily suggests marriage, it is genuinely thrilling for me to watch Olive howl at this betrayal, this utter misunderstanding of what she thought Rue knew existed between them. I reject the idea that she can't grow up and face the real world. Rather, she is asserting the right to find happiness in a way that others, not so inclined, tend to see as diminished. For my part, I was thrilled by Lawler's dramatisation of both a female and male sexuality, which preference the excitement 
of excited reunions and lingering goodbyes over the proximity of domestic bliss. But we live in a world of labels, and there is no label I can give to what I am trying to articulate about Olive, who obviously enjoys lusty heterosexual encounters for five months of the year. The usual notion of gay is a preference for the same sex, but it is more of a kind of old-fashioned notion of gay I am reaching for here, a carefree and showy love of the spontaneously and passionately romantic, a definition unencumbered by a negative connotation of fecklessness, but rather celebrating the value of the instant rather than the enduring, of the intensely immediate rather than the delights of endurance, because it's not the object of her sexual preference that is different. It is the nature of the preferred conditions of, especially Olive's, sexual interest that intrigued and compelled me as I was reading the play. I might say that Lawler looks at the difference between people of the vow and people of the now, regardless of gender. With this personal response to the nature of sexuality in the play in mind, I then became interested in another way of encountering the play, much more sympathetic to my concerns as a playwright whose interest in oral history, verbatim interview and archival research has characterised much of my own writing. When I travelled to the National Library in Canberra recently, I began reading Colonial Voices, A Cultural History of English in Australia by Joy de Moussy, in which she declares that foundational to the acceptance in Australia of a new Australian voice was the play Summer of the Seventeenth Doll. Leslie Rees in The Making of Australian Drama also notes that, quote, what was emerging was a conspicuous method of national self-expression as a means of self-assertion. Indeed, it is impossible to read any commentary, reviews or academic analysis of the play without encountering an almost universal claim that the doll has a, quote, strident, distinctive Australian accent that became part of the play's hallmark. Others talk about the sympathetic reception that the play had in England, but the bewilderment of the American critics who postulated that Although Australia and America shared the language of English, they could barely understand each other. Such was the particularity of our idiom. Much of my own delight in the play is the way in which it resembles the parlance of my beloved Uncle Ross, one of my few living relatives. Ross is, as our slang would have it, a dead ringer for Rue. Not a cane cutter, but a man of many casual employment opportunities, and with them the serial sensation of home and away. A gifted mechanic who counted tow truck driving, long haul trucking, panel beating and office cleaning among his suite of casual skills, he would often speak to me of, quote, giving me a clout across the ear hole if I misbehaved, or talking about the television being, quote, on the blink, or a car having, quote, conked out. The weather was crook, the beer was crook, and his mother, my grandmother, had just gone crook at him for some reason or another. He was referred to by her for so long as, quote, that mug there, that I actually forgot that he actually had a Christian name. His girlfriends were, according to her, all arse and teeth and a few quid, and he himself was too often something of a lurk merchant. The worst thing he himself could say about someone was that they had a, quote, death adder in their kick, meaning that they wouldn't shout for their round at the pub, i.e. afraid of being bitten if they put their hand in their pocket. 
Reading the doll was like a nostalgic visit to the Cogra lounge room of my grandmother's tiny CSR-loaned weatherboard home, where I found words and phrases that I hadn't heard for years, and yet I understood perfectly. I marvelled at the inventiveness and wit of the parlance and bemoaned the gentrification of my own language that had almost certainly known its first home in this swamp of rhyming, bass and street slang. Surely it is Australia's history as a former British colony that meant that the play and the Australian slang in it was better understood by the English than the Americans, I assumed. If I looked up the derivation and antecedents of the idiom, is that what I would find? It was and it wasn't. Olive remarks that Nancy put her up to a dodge, meaning an ingenious contrivance, which comes from the British writer Charles Dickens in Oliver Twist in 1830. The Oxford Dictionary of Phrase, Saying and Quotation also notes that in late 19th century naval slang, a dodger was the mess deck sweeper, who thus avoids other duties. Gradually, a dodger came to be known as a malingerer, a shirker, or a bludger, and dodgy became a word for goods or behaviour that was suspect or faulty. I like the listing of devil dodger as a priest, so that is certainly a tick for British derivation. I then looked up, quote, if she cottons onto me doing anything wrong, she could break out the same way, in the same reference, hoping at least to find a derivation for cottons on, but instead the editor, Elizabeth Knowles, distractingly lists the intriguing, quote, to die with your ears stuffed full of cotton, meaning to be hung at Newgate Prison. The ears stuffed full of cotton bears no relation to a metaphorical illusion about choking to death, but rather to the fact that the chaplain of Newgate was for a long time named Cotton. So to die with your ears, quote, stuffed full of cotton was to die with the chaplain's edicts, to repent, ringing in your ears. The phrase finder on the internet defines cotton on as, quote, to get to know or understand something, and posits the origin as early as 1648, when the poet George Wharton mocked the English Parliament by using the word cotton to mean, quote, to make friendly advances. Quote, whether this was a reference to the rather annoying predisposition of moist raw cotton to stick to things, or whether it alluded to moving of cotton garments closer together during a romantic advance, isn't clear. In the US, the phrase is cotton to rather than cotton on to, but I'd say that wasn't one of the ones that caused the US critics to declare there is a great barrier of language between the United States and Australia. Nor would it have been fly off the handle, which is US slang from 1843, knock your eye out or knock out, which is US slang of 1890, still being used by the Beach Boys in 1965 with the Southern girls and the way they talk, they knock me out when I'm down there. Nor would they have been the least bit confused by snazzy, which is US 1932 slang. Pearl's opening gambit that this Nancy had her head screwed on the right way, meaning to have common sense, is, according to the Oxford Dictionary, late Middle English, but actually derived from the Old French escroc, female screw or nut, and from the Latin scrofa, literally sew and then screw. The early sense of the verb to screw from as far back as the late 16th century was to contort the features, twist around. However they got to having your head screwed on the right way, it was definitely with a European derivation. Getting ready for a moonlight flit, 
dates back to 19th century Scotland. Call it quits dates back to the Latin and was in use in English by the mid-17th century. And to know the ropes goes back to the days of sailing ships in use from the mid-19th century onwards. So what are the phrases that can sincerely claim Australian usage? Green's Dictionary of Slang lists the Bulletin Sydney in 1887 using the word wag as a vagrant from vag to wag. But Olive's use of it on page three of the doll, God, You're a Wag, seems to have more in common with the 1841 Irish use of wag as a mischievous boy, or in this case, woman. The Dublin comic songster has this terrific line, which I won't try to do in an Irish accent. Fun afternoon I played the vag, and to the field my vey did drag. So I think we can give it to the Irish. But Olive's line on page six, that of Bubba, Rue and Barney, didn't seem to wake up she was getting far too old, is a bullseye. Green lists Australian slang for an alert and resourceful person, always aware of the possibilities of the situation, is to be, quote, a full wake-up. 1930 Bulletin Sydney, cripes, you're a full wake-up to that at last, are you? Same goes for Top Dog, which is confidently listed, with the first known use as 1900, again in the bulletin, meaning the boss or the leader. Certainly, once we get to up there Kazali, Aussie derivation is a slam dunk, since it derives as a cry of encouragement from Australian rules football player Ron Kazali, 1893-1963, star of the South Melbourne team and noted for his leaps into the air for a mark. You definitely would have needed a glossary of Australian slang for that one. And when Olive refers to being happy as Larry... I'm going to preference the contender for the best-known character in the world of similes to Australian boxer Larry Foley, 1847-1917. A successful pugilist who never lost a fight, retired at 32 and collected a purse of £1,000 for his final fight. It's hardly linguistic news that much of the Australian idiom is based on a combination of historical and contemporary British slang. What is surprising is the more than several words in the doll that are American slang of the period and would have been easily understood. I wonder if it really was the idiom that confounded and confused the Americans, or if it was just a very convenient screen for an inability to comprehend the moral and sexual insights that I have mused upon above. There is certainly no way to prove that is the case, and without the exigencies of a PhD thesis in which I might compare the American and Australian idiom of the time, I don't really have the resources to make an academic case for it either. I am really just defaulting to my lived instincts as a playwright to muse about the ways in which critics, the ultimate hostages of their own times and places, can sometimes focus on technical or structural aspects of a play to explain their response, rather than allow themselves to be confronted with the more essential or radical nature of the content of the play. I can hear the howls of derision for such unsupported assertions, but I am simply trying to unpick the initial cultural resistance of America with its entrenched religious morality to a play with as visionary and provocative a take on sexuality as the doll, and to question ever so gently from many years after the fact whether it was just the idiom that confounded them. Australian critic Bruce Grant posits that the Americans did not understand the social character of Ruin Barney, but I wonder if it was more likely Olive's non-conformity as a woman which presented the even greater moral conundrum, at least on Broadway. 
In the end, why something does or doesn't work in a specific context is part of the mystery of working in the theatre, a random pill that every playwright must swallow at one time or another in their career, spectacularly offset by the delight of a line that is unexpectedly funny, an audience that is uncharacteristically responsive, or a work that confounds its critics and becomes an HSC-studied, enduringly performed classic. As far as the language goes, I do believe that the mix of it all, combined with the distinctive Australian accent, is in its own way uniquely Australian, and that even if much of it has derivation from elsewhere, the combination and subtleties of meaning being used in this play, in this specific context, are uniquely Australian. Indeed, I found in my lexicographic travels a marvellous note in the Oxford Dictionary of Modern Usage by Nicholas Hudson. Quote, Humpty Dumpty's famous dictum is, when I use a word, it means just what I choose it to mean, neither more or less. This distresses some people who believe that words have real meaning, which exists irrespective of current usage. Some worship at the shrine of etymology, and this makes some sense. It certainly explains what a word once meant and may be used as an argument against some new usage. But what of new usages which have become established? Those who believe in real meanings are like those who seek real meaning in life. They are embarking on a fascinating but ultimately self-indulgent journey. At best, they will discover what they believe to be an authoritative arbiter, a dictionary or a prophet to whose wisdom they will defer. They are unlikely to encounter meaning itself. So can I invoke Hudson's magnificent provocation to make a case that contemporary Australian playwrights, including myself, are still writing in a very different and much diversified Australian idiom, and that the particularity of the Australian parlance should not be allowed to be corralled merely to the drop syllables and colourful metaphors of the doll. In the more globally mobile English of the 21st century, where plays in English want to travel to stages across the world, what is the character of the Australian idiom that persists in contemporary drama? And can we still see national self-expression as a means of self-assertion in our contemporary drama? Is the American theatre still confounded by the Australian idiom in our drama? Or is there some other reason why a production of a new Australian work in that country continues to be a rarity? When Australian playwrights' work travels to America, or indeed Britain today, do playwrights feel the need to mutate the Australian idiom to suit American or British linguistic and cultural supremacy? And if we do, are we sacrificing the national self-expression and self-exertion so celebrated in the language of Summer of the 17th Doll on the altar of international success? Well, the job of the playwright is surely to ask questions rather than to provide answers. Reading Summer of the Seventeenth Doll provoked a complexity of feelings in me about my history, about the fate and compromises of Australian drama on the international stage, about the character and nature of the contemporary Australian idiom and how it continues to change and define us. My own fascination with the way Australians actually speak evidenced in my verbatim-based practice, has been enriched by the bold density of Lawler's idiomatic use in the doll. 
I unequivocally admire the courage and daring he had to rail against both social conservatism in his choice of subjects and most especially theatrical conservatism in his use of language. But the worst, or perhaps the best of it, is that he has made me miss my grandmother terribly, the blunt beauty of her rough, abusive shows of affection, the way in which language provided a palpable armour against the pretensions of the class to which she did not belong, the way in which she could wield a phrase like a fishing line to pull you up out of Barney's bull, a condition which I always knew should be avoided since it connoted to be bitched, buggered and bewildered. It is through musing deeply on this play and the nature of the Australian idiom that I have realised again that, when she died, I lost not just her spirit and the sustaining beauty of her love, but also the vocal fireworks of her distinctive generation, the verbal calisthenics of their metaphorically much more rich turns of phrase, the sheer and outright fun that they had with words and images in their speech. Our parlance at first glance seems almost pale and insipidly controlled in comparison, rinsed of vulgarity and vigorous colour by corporate speak and weasel words and endless spin. I might, as Samuel Johnson does, lament. I am not yet so lost in lexicography as to forget that words are the daughters of the earth and that things are the sons of heaven. Language is only the instrument of science and words are but the signs of ideas. I wish, however, that the instrument might be less apt to decay and that signs might be permanent like the things which they denote. The doll is like a linguistic time capsule of that age, but so too will be the work of contemporary Australian playwrights today. Ultimately, I cannot wish for the swirl and mix of words and meanings and usage to stand still, for then there would be no need for we contemporary writers to continue to capture our times in all their diversity and particularity. And so I find my fingers itching anew to press record on a device that can help me once again to archive an aspect of the Australian community in order to play it back on stage in all its contradiction and surprise as we continue to wish to see ourselves with not only fresh eyes, but fresh and open ears. Thanks for listening to this episode of Not In Print. I hope you enjoyed hearing more about this great Australian play. And if you did, we'd love it if you wrote a quick review of the show on iTunes. Even a short review will go a long way in helping others find out about our podcast so they can learn from the same playwrights and theatre professionals that you've enjoyed listening to. You can find out more about who we are and view our full catalogue at currencypress.com.au. This episode was produced by Currency Press with the generous assistance of the Department of Performance Studies and the School of Letters, Art and Media at the University of Sydney.